You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 21 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson. Grouping provisions for payroll tax purposes are not easy to understand. So I ask Andrew Ficou and Enka Dao of Revenue New South Wales to shed some light on these for us. I started by asking Andrew and Enka why we even have grouping provisions. Here's their answer. The reason we have grouping provisions is when payroll tax was introduced, we had a threshold, no grouping provisions, and businesses realized if they structured themselves in a certain way, separated ownership or their workforce or whatever, they could lower each individual businesses below the threshold, below the threshold, hence not having to pay any payroll tax. So the grouping provisions were introduced so we were able to identify businesses that have common interests through ownership, through the use of employees, you know, be it at a corporate level or at an individual level. Once we establish this um, interest, and, and we'll talk about the level of interest that's needed, well then we no longer see them as individual businesses. We see them as one larger entity instead of two ABNs or five ABNs or whatever. We would see them as one larger entity. And once we establish that one larger entity, well, Businesses only get one threshold, so that one larger entity only receives one threshold. Businesses are liable for their payroll tax, so that one larger entity and its group members would be liable for each other's payroll tax jointly or separately for the period they are grouped. So the provisions are there, so we're able to identify if there is a structure where Businesses are utilizing the services or are able to demonstrate that the control is between a certain type of individual or within a business. And once it's there, you're grouped. We don't see you separate. We see you as one. We treat you as just one business. Do the contractor provisions and the grouping provisions give rise to the most litigation, most conflict and discussion? The grouping provisions we have to remember, are a matter of fact. You're either grouped or you're not, okay? It's very black and white in that. You have control or you don't, you're sharing employees or you're not. Whereas the contractor provisions have that level of, of grayness because uh, are we dealing with, you know, should this contract be included or not included? You know, it's a balance of probabilities there. You're weighing up the scales. Have you shown enough substantiation when, when you're trying to show to the auditor you know, this is why I've done this. That's the key in contractor provisions is, is that grayness? Do you have enough evidence to support what you are doing? The grayness for grouping provisions kicks in when we're dealing with exclusions. Because when we're dealing with exclusions, we're dealing with a discretion of the chief commissioner to exclude because the grouping is there as a matter of fact. There is control or there is common employees. But at the end of the day, we need to be able to prove that the businesses that are seeking an exclusion from each other, they meet the criteria that is specified. Now, just to quickly sum up the whole reason of having grouping provisions is, once again, it's a anti-avoidance provision. It's all about anti-avoidance. Because back in the 70s, when this was introduced, 
there was what's called splitting back then. And, and the businesses were, let's say they had a million dollars worth of wages. And let's just assume the payroll tax threshold was $600,000. Well, what do you have to do to get around paying payroll tax? Well, cut the company in half, start up a new ABN, $500,000 in one business, $500,000 in the other business. No more payroll tax. Each is below the threshold. So in order to prevent this splitting, as it was known as, the grouping provisions were introduced as an anti-avoidance provision. In terms of what, what is harmonized, you know, grouping is the same. It doesn't matter which state or territory. The grouping is exactly the same. The, the main provisions that are out there at the moment is the related body corporation provision that is looking at business to business grouping. Then there's the common use of employees, which looks at are businesses sharing employees within themselves. And then there is the common control, which is looking at individuals of a business. Does an individual or a set of individuals have a controlling interest in two or more businesses? And the last one is tracing of interest. Tracing of interest looks at an individual's direct and indirect through another corporation ownership or interest in a business, right? The main three we're going to talk about today is the related body corporation one, the common control and the common employees. When we're dealing related bodies corporate, we're looking at parent-subsidiary relationships or subsidiary-to-subsidiary chain-like structures. So Corporation 1 controls Corporation 2, 2 controls 3. Now, under the Corporations Act of 2001 is where this part of our legislation is powered up because it relies on a demonstration of control. Now, the magic number when dealing with grouping is always greater than 50% when we're looking at control. Greater than 50%. Not 50%, but greater than 50%. And this is dealing with the controlling of the composition of the board, that that power for director or directors to collectively control the decisions of a board. Having greater than 50% of the votes at a general meeting would also constitute a demonstration of control there. Holding greater than 50% of the issued share capital would also demonstrate control. And then if it's a body corporate, is a subsidiary of a holding company or another body corporate, then once again we're dealing with that chain-like effect. The, The thing to remember here is, With the related body corporate grouping, it's not just what's happening in Australia. We're looking at that chain line structure, and that can be from overseas into a subsidiary that could be overseas into Australia, and then that could have following effects. And it could be in different states. It doesn't have to be just in New South Wales. Because if you didn't do that, then companies would just have a holding holding overseas in Hong Kong and then just have have several subsidiaries in Australia. So the key here to remember is if you believe that your business is owned by another business or has a greater than 50% control by another business, you need to start working up the chain because you need to be able to get to the ultimate holding company and determine what businesses they have interests in And what businesses do those businesses have interests in throughout the world 
throughout Australia. Once you have that total structure, that you're able to identify what the total grouping is. We're not concerned about the wages of those businesses overseas because that's not going to be liable for payroll tax typically. But we are concerned once those you know group structures have those arms that reach out to different industries, different you know jurisdictions and things like that. Because again, we need to find out all the businesses in Australia that are grouped because all of those businesses are only going to be claiming the one threshold in New South Wales. If those businesses start, you know, don't know each other or can't identify each other and then start claiming multiple thresholds, that's a large tax liability because you're roughly looking at around $41,000. That's what equates to $750,000 at 5.45%. We look at current year and the last four. So you're looking at about... If a multiple businesses have been claiming the threshold incorrectly, you're looking at about $200,000 right there. We haven't imposed any penalties as yet, and we haven't imposed any interest. So it can be a large sum of money straight away, simply because you weren't able to identify who the other group members were, and at the same time, the other group members were claiming a threshold in New South Wales. And you probably would need to work with the ATO closely to identify those international structures. Well, we deal with multiple agencies, which wherever we can get source data, we will. Mm-hmm. You know, ASIC, ABR, you know, these have registers of, of shareholdings and so forth that we can access that information and then establish these groupings. And it's really important to note, especially when we're dealing with related corporations, that sometimes the reason they're getting caught out is because they're not aware of other chains of business operating in Australia because a business that may have its parent company overseas may be so diversified that they're not aware. Like one line of business might be involved in the production of CDs. Another line of business might be involved in the production of hair products. And then another corporation might be cattle farm. Now that cattle farm might only have wages which don't even exceed the threshold, but by principle, they are absorbing some of that threshold of the group. So these chains of business need to be aware of each other's wages so that they can collectively determine who's going to be the designated group employer. Now, the designated group employer is the business who will claim that threshold. And that nomination is done by the group as an entirety, and then they claim the threshold, and then the rest will just pay at a flat rate of tax. Now, if this cattle farm was left out of the chain, well, there's $200,000 left out of the equation and it should have been included. So it's really important. And as I always advise businesses when dealing with these types of groupings is to ask up your chain of businesses and say, are there other business holdings in Australia that we need to be aware of? Because especially where business is diverse, It could be that there are multiple thresholds being claimed by different entities in that chain, and that's where you're going to get caught out, and that's a lot of unpaid payroll tax. In terms of payroll tax mistakes, grouping may be the most costly one to make. So it's strongly advised to investigate these situations ask up your chain of businesses to find out if there are other business holdings in Australia. Mm, because it's, it's not just one employee here or there, it's the entire business. 
I mean, yeah. the entire payroll. Yeah. And, and a business, if they don't know the other group members, may just look at themselves and go, well, I'm below 750. I don't need to be concerned about payroll tax. Well, you could have 10 businesses that pay $150,000 each, something you're at $1.5 million. As a group, you're well above the threshold. And as a group, you should be paying payroll tax. And you may not know or you may not have lodged something we're going back five years. And this may happen in a, an audit where we're investigating one business and it so happens that we are now probing and asking questions about other holdings. And now that might spark, oh, we've never considered this, and now there's these other chains. So it's really important that you, um, you know, really investigate these things and are aware of them before you're ever audited. Because if, let's say, for example, if one business doesn't pay its payroll tax, another one in a group could be found liable to pay the payroll tax for the other. This is what's referred to as joint and several liability. And that's one of the effects of the grouping provisions is that each group member is jointly liable for each other's payroll tax. So if one, we can't recover from one, we can chase another. And being a tax that needs to consider total Australian wages, that's extremely important because if you're only looking at what's happening here in New South Wales and you might know of yourself and another group member in New South Wales, there are maybe other industries that are part of the same chain of, or, or part of the same group as related bodies corporate that are in another state and you've missed out considering the total impact of total Australian wages. So there's a few things there to consider and the key thing here is to really investigate and know who are your group members and to know who's claiming that threshold. So that's, that's the related body corporation grouping. The, the next one we're going to talk about is the use of common employees. This is literally not the level of interest that a business has in another business or an individual has in, in multiple businesses. This is, are there businesses that are sharing a workforce? To form a grouping under common employees, you only need to identify one employee. That is shared. That is shared. So it's not a case of, oh, we need half the employees or greater than half the employees. No. We only need to identify one. Now, when we're looking at this, we're looking at all the different aspects of services that a business requires, you know, admin, HR, payroll, things like that. Who is providing all these services? Is that services, if there's an agreement with another business, is it solely or mainly to provide those services? Is it through an agreement? How, how exactly is that being done? What we're trying to do is we're trying to identify that individual that is being shared. Are they performing duties for a business? So are they under the control of business? So I'm hired by business A, but I'm required to perform duties for business B. So I'm technically under the control of business B. There's three ways that the legislation deals with common employee groupings. Firstly, it's where the borrowed servant situation, where you have a situation where a business has an employee who solely or mainly performs duties for another business, solely or mainly for another business. The next scenario is where two businesses have the shared workers. 
and the duties of those workers, like a, a, maybe a joint venture type of situation. So they've got a common business where the workers are performing their duties in that. The last situation, which is the cast the widest net, is where there's simply an agreement, an arrangement for the businesses, between the businesses, for a worker or multiple workers have their duties shared between those businesses. And that's probably very difficult to find, isn't it? I can imagine that's... Well, let's give you an example of a situation that could be caught out. Now, the typical one here is you have a manufacturing business that has its employees and then you have another business which does administration. But the workers of that administration business perform their services wholly and solely for the manufacturing business. Now, they may have structured their business like that for other reasons besides payroll tax, but because the workers of that business perform their duties wholly or mainly for another uh, business, then they're captured. Let's now make this example a car yard. Now, in this car yard, there are three businesses operating. You have business one, which is the sellers of those those used motor vehicles. Business two is a, biz, a mechanic shop, which does the servicing and bringing those cars up to the standard of sale. Business three, which is to do with the cleaning of vehicles throughout the car yard. Now, these three op- operate all under, under the one car yard, but they are separately owned. No one has a joint interest in one of the other person's business. But the workers of each business may work in connection and there's a, a, an agreement between each that they're working for each other's business. Therefore, they are captured under the common employee grouping structure. What we're trying to capture here is any time if we can identify an employee of one business performing duties for the carrying off another business, right? And that's the key. They have to be able to be performing duties. There needs to be a level of control by the other business influenced on that employee, mm-hmm. right? So in this example that Andrew used, if those em- employees didn't really talk to each other... If we're using the car yard example, mm-hmm. let's say you're looking to buy a car. You call that car yard and you go, yep, I want to come in on Thursday. I want to look at some of these cars you come in. Uh, you go in, you speak to the receptionist, you look at the cars, the salesperson looks at the car, provides that car for you, great. Six months later, part of that sale was first services is free. So now you got to book in servicing. You call the receptionist again, say, yep, hi, my name is blah, blah, blah. I bought this car six months ago. It's due for its first service. I'd like to book it in. They go, perfect. When would you like to come in? Let me book you in. Now, what is that receptionist doing? She works for the sales, but now she's representing the mechanics. Mm -hmm. And there you have your one employee. That's the employee, because now she's performing duties in relation to the mechanics, because she's now taking orders, making bookings on behalf of them. They will tell her that, yes, to make a booking this day, don't make a booking that day, please follow up with this client, make sure they're coming in. You bring your car in, you again, Go to reception, who will then direct you to where you need to go. As soon as businesses share a a reception, share a phone center or anything. It can be as simple as that. Mm. So that's the key to remember here is we're not looking at the depth 
of service provided. What we're looking at are their shared employees. If that's the case, then common use of employees. The grouping provisions are very broad. They have to be extremely broad because businesses are very broad. How they structure themselves, how they interact with other businesses, ownership, things like that is very broad. So the grouping provisions have to be very broad. But we will talk about exclusion from grouping. So just because you are grouped for payroll tax purposes, there are provisions there where you can use the commissioner's discretion. You need to apply for it. You need to fill out a form. There's a process in place that you need to be able to substantiate. Then you may be able to get an exclusion. That means you're technically grouped, but after that exclusion, you're able to claim the threshold on your own. So with these provisions that we're discussing now, ultimately it establishes a grouping as a matter of fact, as we started off saying. Related corporations, common use of employees, and now common control, these are the typical provisions that are there to establish a grouping as a matter of fact. The situation as to whether an exclusion can be applied, as Uncle was just explaining, can only really apply when we're dealing with common control, tracing of interest, and the use of common employees, but not for related corporations. But now let's have a look at common control groupings, and then we'll finally get to that topic of exclusion. So with common control, it kind of like mirrors related corporations, because now we're looking at control. Where in related corporations, it was business-to-business grouping, right? When we're dealing with the business-to-business grouping, that's typically how it stands for all groupings. But when we're dealing with related corporations, it's corporation-to-corporation grouping. So we're always dealing with the same type, like-for-like business groupings there. But when we move to the topic of common control groupings, it now deals with not only corporations, but we throw into the mix all different types of businesses, all those different types of entities, whether they're companies, trust, a sole trader business, a partnership, an incorporated or unincorporated body corporate. These are now thrown into the mix and then we look at the controlling interest of being greater than 50%. So this now looks at not just the business itself, but the individual's that have the ownership of those businesses. So does an individual by themselves or do a set of individuals together have a controlling interest in two or more businesses? Now, controlling interest is, again, greater than 50%. 50% on its own is not enough to group. It has to be greater than 50%. When you're looking at companies, you're you're looking at shareholdings, directorships, When you're looking at trust, you're looking at the beneficiaries. Partnerships, you're looking at the partners. The level of profit to the level of capital, either one could be greater than 50%. That is a controlling interest. With, you know, sole traders, you're looking at them by themselves. So the difference between related corporations and commonly controlled is that the related corporation follows the Corporations Act, whereas the common control just steps away from that and just looks at... The individuals. The common control would apply a lot more often than the related. It's probably the most common, I find, of of the grouping provisions because, you know, you're grouping the director with the beneficiary. 
You're, you're grouping the partner or the partners with the shareholders. So it is, it is commonly the structure of within the ownership of a, of a business itself is what we're reviewing. Yeah. And you'll find that related corporations tend to be more of your multinational global businesses here. And, and that's where those chains occur. And, and they may be the most logical structure for them where one corporation controls another corporation and just flows on from that. And then there's that, that key aspect where we're dealing with corporations to corporation groupings, and there's no possibility for an exclusion in those matters. But for common control groupings, there is a possibility for an exclusion. The only way you are going to get an exclusion from corporations is not an exclusion, is when the level of control drops to 50% or less. Then it's a matter of fact, it's just not grouped. But for common control, we can apply for an exclusion separately. The one thing I do want to add here is, you know, when we're looking at control itself, well, we know the directorship. We know it's if it's one director, it's 100%. Two directors, it's commonly 50% each. Three directors, 33.3%, and so on and so forth. We know with the partnership, well, what's the profit level to what's the capital level? You can establish that. If it's a sole trader... They're the sole owner. They have 100%. With shareholdings, we know the amount of shareholdings that's been allocated. But with trusts, it's a little bit different. Unit trusts, we can identify what the unit holders are and give a percentage of ownership there. But with discretionary trusts, family trusts, you're not able to identify the ownership solely based on the allocation of the distributions as such because it's the trustee that decides who and if they receive any distributions or benefits from that trust in any given financial year. So based on that fact, the legislation is actually allocated that any beneficiary, even if they don't receive benefits, is going to be seen as in control of that trust. So any beneficiary is going to be seen in greater than 50% of a discretionary trust. How do you treat spouses? If they're a beneficiary, just like that. So one thing I think that's really important, we get it as a very common question, to do with spouses and familial ties, to do with group. The familial bond is not necessarily what creates a grouping. For example, I might own a business and my wife might have her own business. Just because we're husband and wife, that doesn't create a grouping. What would create a grouping in that scenario is if we were 50-50 in my business and we were 50-50 in her business. And that would then create a grouping because our joint interest is then greater than 50%. But when I control mine 100% and she controls hers 100%, that does not create a grouping. All right. So if I was to deal with another, let's say a bit of a broader situation, and now let's bring in this situation of um, the different business structures here, the different types of entities. Let's say my business is a pub and I have myself and my brother as 50-50% ownership in that, that pub and we structure that under a corporation. Myself and my brother and another third party have, let's say, a car parts shop. Now, those two businesses, myself and my brother, because let's say we have 33% under a unit trust, 
and that equates to 66%. We have controlling interest in that business of the trust, and myself and my brother have 50-50 in the corporation, which is the pub. In that circumstance, the two businesses are grouped as a matter of fact. And there in this example, therefore, you can see a corporation and a trust business being grouped. Grouping commonly happens between two businesses. Yes, within a group, you'll find five, six, eight group members. But typically what we're looking at is business A is grouped with business B. Business A is grouped with business C. Business B is grouped with business D. And as soon as we find there's common links between groupings, we subsume them to be a larger group, right? So you have to keep that in mind. Not just focus on your business and what group members you're grouped with. You have to identify, are those group members grouped with anyone else as well? Because eventually it is all going to have to be subsumed into one larger grouping structure. And that can get very expensive. Again, we make sure that that group structure receives one threshold and they're joint and severally liable for each other's debts. So this really brings us now to the provision of exclusions, right? So if you are grouped for payroll tax purposes, what needs to be done to, to demonstrate that you're able to gain or apply for an exclusion. Remember, a related body corporation can't get an exclusion, right? There, if you're grouped, you're grouped. The only way you're going to get out of it if your level of interest drops to 50% or less. Common control, common employees, tracing of interest are the only three that you're able to gain an exclusion. And what you need to be able to demonstrate is, is a key phrase that's in the legislation, and that is, a business, and this is what you need to be able to demonstrate to the office, and we have a form online, about 50-odd questions that, that goes into great depth, but this is what it's trying to identify. A business carried on by the person is carried on independently of and is not connected with the carrying on of a business carried on by any other member of that group. What's that carrying on about? Well, it's literally just trying to say that your business is independent of not just one of the group members, but every single group member in that group, right? And as long as you can demonstrate that, and you do demonstrate that through many different factors, management, trade between businesses, sharing of resources, financial dependency, the nature of the business itself, the ownership, the the loans, the, you know, the bulk buying, you know, are you reliant? Are you trading? Are you interacting with the other business? Is it at a commercial arm's length or is there is there discounts offered? Are customers to your business after you're providing them with the service of the good being passed on to the other business, right? Because typically when you're in the marketplace, you're there to compete, and if you're providing benefits to another business, you're not really competing with them anymore. So the kayak we used before probably wouldn't qualify for the exclusion because they are handing their customers from one business to the next. It's not just one factor. Again, we look at case by case. We, we weigh up the level of you know, benefit that they're receiving 
to the amount of grouping. Now, let's go to the example that I painted earlier of the corporation, which was the pub, and then the trust business, which was the car parts business. Now, is there a possibility for exclusion? You've got to look at this exclusion from business to business. So one group member will seek an exclusion from another. All right, let's say now when considering these factors. Now, when it comes to seeking an exclusion, I think the key thing out of that section of, of the legislation, which, which Anka quoted earlier, was to emphasise that you need to prove independence and non-connection. So all the factors to do with exclusion are all around proving independence and non-connection. So in my example, let's say I was the one looking after the pub, but my brother was and, and the other third party were looking after the car parts business. So the level of common management the, between the two businesses is separated. They ju we just show up together to find out how much money we're, we're, we're making. The trade between the businesses, can one help the other? Because that comes to the nature of the businesses. You know, we can't really say, well, you know, ha have a beer and, and that's going to be helping the other business. There's, there's, the natures of the businesses are too dissimilar in that, that case. So there's a lack of sharing of resources. There's the financial dependencies. One's not going guarantor for the other one. One's not provide, producing goods and the other one doing servicing of those goods. You know, so the, and then we consider also what is that level of ownership? One is 50-50 and the other one is 66% ownership level. The sharing of the premises. Are they working off the premises of the same? So car parts and pub, they're not in the same thing. So there's no real joint benefit there. But a lot of the cases that we have seen, and, and as we were discussing earlier on, that when things do get messy around grouping, it is to do with exclusions. And it's when it goes to, and the times it goes to the courts or to the tribunal or it's sought for a review, an internal review due to an objection, it's because they're often seeking an exclusion because the grouping is a matter of fact, as has been explained earlier. So they need to prove, based on the questions that they ask when seeking that exclusion, that the businesses are independent. If they are sharing operating manuals, if they're sharing resources and, and, and you know, clients, as um, Anka was mentioning earlier, if they're, you know, equipment that's being shared, if they've got mutual benefits by coexisting, then it's highly unlikely that they're going to be able to get an exclusion. And we look at the level of, you know, if they are sharing, if they have the one premise, are there lease agreements? You know, the level of lease agreements is one party paying all the rent and the other party just receiving the benefit of it. Who's bought all the equipment, the computers, the copiers and all of that. We look at the level of, you know, infrastructure that's used to run a business. Whose overheads are these? And that's, that's what we're looking at. At the end of the day, you have to demonstrate independence. I'm running this business without the assistance of another business. And that's what exclusion is all about. So to summarize exclusions, it would be... So that's, that's basically just one exclusion. One exclusion. It's an application of a discretion. Of a discretion. Oh, okay. So it's not you can apply it automatically, like the contractor provisions and, you know, payroll taxes are self-assessed. So as a taxpayer, you're required to assess a lot of it on your own. But exclusions is not self-assessed. You, it's an application where you need to apply to the chief commissioner to use their discretion to satisfy that you are independent 
and not connected. So the reason why we have exclusions is because we do realize that grouping of businesses and its provisions cast a very broad net and it may cause some unintended or, you know, problematic groupings that we don't really intend to capture. And it's not just about pursuing, you know, enterprises which are entrepreneurial and like, for example, if I own one business 100% and say it's jewellery making and then the, the other one is about a fuel dispensary, you know, I can have multiple interests, but if they are totally independent, I have separate managers looking after those businesses and those businesses are not connected in any way, you know, no financials are being shared, joint loans or anything, there's a possibility to get an exclusion. The 100% control might be there of each one of those, but it's going to be up to you to prove independence and non-connection. You're going to get a lot of this information also. If you're not sure, you should contact the office. You can contact us via our email, payrolltax at revenue.nsw.gov.au. Or if you want to have a chat, if you want to work through the situation, you want to talk to somebody, you can give us a call, 1300 139 815. But the starting point for any of this for all the revenue rulings and all of that is to visit our website www.revenue.nsw.gov.au We're here to help, ask us the question and let's work at it together. Welcome back. I was intrigued by Andrew's comment that for payroll tax, the grouping provisions are the most expensive mistake to make. In the next episode, episode 22, Claire Thornet of WLF in Hobart will talk about meal entertainment. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. <laughs>